there is definitely a need to look again at the legislation around gambling. I would be concerned as a parent, certainly outside of the industry, that there was, there was way too much uh, exposure to gambling. Your website, your branding on your post-match interview wall and around your stadium, probably in your programme, is, is, you know, marketing four or five betting companies to your global audience is not, I would argue, not healthy. In 2005, the then Labour government passed new legislation with regards to how gambling companies could operate in the UK. The main focuses of the Act were to prevent gambling from being a source of crime and disorder, to ensure gambling was being conducted fairly and openly, and to protect children and other vulnerable people from being harmed or exploited. At the time, one of the major criticisms of the Act was to allow Las Vegas-style so-called super casinos to operate in Britain. Although pressure from dissenting voices and a change of leadership ensured that these super casinos never came to be, perhaps a much worse combination of events was about to take place. Events that the new liberalised gambling act would allow for. My name's Lewis Finney and this is Gambling and Football, a complicated relationship. Way back in 2001, a report was produced, the Bud Report, uh, which recommended to the then Labour government that we should free up gambling. That's Lord Foster, or Don as he prefers to be addressed. He's been involved in debates around gambling for some time now. Back in 2005, he was a Lib Dem MP. Overall, the Act decriminalised, reduced the legislation around gambling, made it much easier for gambling to flourish, and that's what then happened. And if you combine it with the fact that the first iPhone hadn't even been uh, invented at the time of the Gambling Act, and now everybody's got a smartphone, everybody can gamble wherever they are 24-7, the world has changed dramatically. The new Act allowed for adverts to be broadcast on radio and TV, and, as Don just alluded to, the internet, which would soon be in the pockets of almost everyone in the country, young and old. You can see where this is going. I started gambling as a child um, when I was 15, 16, by placing small casual bets on football, thinking it was a innocent, a normal part of football. James Grimes is a recovering gambling addict. A football fan, James was drawn in by the adverts that accompany the beautiful game. I used to believe the adverts when they said it matters more when there's money on it and bet in play now and all those led me to believe that gambling and football went hand in hand and soon it became it came to a point where I couldn't watch football without a bet on and the minute I turned legal age to gamble I was introduced to online gambling and that escalated my problem with gambling to a whole new level because I had access to addictive products and bonuses and sign up offers and my whole life revolved around it um, from a really young age and for 10 years it destroyed pretty much every aspect of my life. James is one of the lucky ones. He managed to get out. He set up the Big Step campaign to draw attention to some of these issues and now works for the charity Gambling With Lives, who help families of people who have lost loved ones to suicide as a direct result of gambling addiction. It's very difficult to get out of that world because there's relentless predatory marketing and if you are trying to stop gambling, it's very hard to do that when you're receiving direct marketing telling you you've got a free bet in your account or if you're watching a football match and there's... 15 
mentions of Skybet around the goalposts. It's very hard to stop something when it's in your face um, that much. And the, the only way that I stopped and most recovering addicts that I've spoke to do stop is when they reach rock bottom. And, and sadly, some people don't stop. Five, up to 500 people every year in this country take their own life as a result of gambling addiction. So some people don't stop and rock bottom, their rock bottom is suicide. So why is it that the gambling industry are so effective with their marketing? I spoke to Matt Gaskell, clinical lead and consultant psychologist for the NHS Northern Gambling Service to find out more. It's effective because we have a gambling industry that makes about £15 billion a year. They're extraordinarily powerful. They've got a huge amount of money behind them. They spend £1.5 billion a year on advertising and marketing of their products. They have been very sophisticated and clever about where they market those products. They've been successful in, I think, selling an illusion that this is a fairly harm-free entertainment. The way it's portrayed to, to young people and sports fans is that it's exciting, it's something that you should be doing, it's part and parcel of being a sports fan. They sell an illusion that you can win easy money and, and do well in it. it. It looks appealing. So, And a lot of people live under very stressful circumstances too, so it can be really enticing to fall into a gambling habit. What they've done very cleverly with sport, of course, is that they focused on our most popular sports, football being the number one, of course, but there are other ones that you'll be aware of where they've made that association. So football now, you know, you go to a football match or you speak to your mates about football and synonymous with those conversations are bets and betting and gambling and in-play sports betting and what are the odds on the weekend and on the games and so on. So they've been really successful in recent years at normalising it. It's on the shirts, it's in the stadiums, it's on the radio broadcasts, it's, it's everywhere. And they've been able to, because they have the money, they've been able to target celebrities and sports men and women and people that young people really look up to who are peddling these products and, and making it look exciting. It's not easy being special. Let me explain. No one does football like Carl. With Pep, when both teams score, it's goals galore. Money back specials from Paddy Power. Make your best bet at Bet Victor. Bet in play now. It's as simple as tap, tap, boom. Get £10 free when you join 32red.com. That's betting better. We're all aware of the omnipresence of betting ads within football. But what about the psychology of gambling addiction? Addiction is a multifactorial issue. The commercial practices of the gambling industry are relevant here. The products that they expose the public to, some of those are highly addictive products. Just like we know that cigarettes are addictive, we know that certain drugs of abuse are addictive. Gambling products have characteristics built within them which make them very addictive. There's the wider society as well that we live in, the stresses and pressures that we're under, how easy it is to get access to these products and to fall into habits and so on. And then there are psychological factors as well that can be relevant as well. So there can be certain characteristics like impulsivity, for example, or people who are looking to escape difficult emotions and personal circumstances. So there's a number of factors at play and we're concerned about all of those. But what I would say to you is that the products themselves are really key in amongst the mix here. Usually people and the industry themselves want to focus on, oh, this is about certain individuals. There must be something wrong with them. This isn't about us and what we do. I don't take that view. And I think I've got a lot of experience and, and knowledge to suggest that the products and practices are extremely harmful. 
Now it would be easy for me to round up many more people like James and Matt who could talk all day about the dangers of gambling and the way it's being marketed. But let's hear from the gambling industry. Paul Louis is COO at BetVictor. One of the big issues for the industry right now is affordability. And we're, we're working very hard. You know, we're one of the companies working very hard on affordability as the whole industry is. All of this is great, but it does fall down on the fact you require data. The data you tend to get, I mean, we, there, there is lots of third party data, which, but it's but it's not necessarily conclusive, but it's indicators. So we're now using uh, credit reference ages, uh, agents to flag up potential uh, customers who may have financial problems. You know, if you've got CCJs, if you've certainly if you've ever been insolvent, that 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 does raise a red flag in terms of your ability to manage your finances. But an awful lot of what we what we require, we have to get from the customer. We're now in a position pretty much where we're asking customers quite early in their life cycle with us to provide us data on how much they earn, what they do for a living. These are quite intrusive. Customers don't really want to give you that information. But as an industry, I think we accept we have to do that. But it, it will still be flawed because ultimately we can sit there and we can look at a customer from what we can see, what they've sent us. And from our perspective, what they're doing may well be affordable. What we can't do and what we don't have is that centralized ability to know actually, you know, what they're doing with you, which might, might all look very safe and sound, they're doing with another 200 licensed entities, which clearly means it's not safe and sound because you're multiplying what they're doing you with, with you by 200. So until we almost get this kind of centralized information pool, which in, in the days of kind of data protection actually is, is actually quite challenging, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to really make massive strides around affordability because you just don't have enough information. BetVictor have previously sponsored Liverpool's training kit and this year struck a deal to sponsor Fulham's playing kit on their return to the Premier League. So where does Paul stand in this debate? You know, and the arguments around kind of normalisation of gambling, um, I understand, you know, I think I, I love gambling as an industry and I, you know, and it's been something I've always had a huge interest in. But when I was growing up, it was something that I, I was attracted to, I, I suppose, through my own research. It wasn't thrust in my face. And I do have a concern, you know, from a, you know, that the normalisation and the fact is that the gambling is, is considered almost a normal activity or an everyday activity can be quite dangerous. Clearly, my children are, are effectively very much aware of, of gambling simply because I work in the industry. So they, they have an immediate connection. I would be concerned as a parent, certainly outside of the industry, that there was there was way too much. Uh, exposure to gambling and actually in a fairly uncontrolled way i.e it's the middle of a saturday afternoon i'm watching my favorite football team and they've got you know they've got they've got a betting logo on their front shirt i don't think it's healthy that's the third time we've heard football mentioned now and it's a major character in this story it was a gateway for james's addiction as it is for many more like him playing and training kits pitch side advertising hoardings match day programs Television, radio and online ads, interview boards, league sponsorship. Gambling is now ubiquitous within and practically synonymous with football. Just listen to this from the Mail on Sunday's chief sports news correspondent and editor of Sporting Intelligence, Nick Harris. Even when they, you, you, know, you don't have a shirt sponsor, Leicester City are an example. Their shirt sponsor is obviously a, a King Power duty-free brand, but... I think there was one game earlier in the season just finished where there was, I think it was five different betting partners that Leicester City have got, even though their main sponsor isn't a betting partner. Certainly Betway, W88, 
Bet365. I'm not sure if Yarbo is a betting company or an express money, I think, is, is financial services rather than betting. But certainly I think Leicester are an example of a Premier League club that have got four or five different betting partners and they don't even have a betting partner as their shirt sponsor and that and and that's not uncommon the fact that your website your branding on your post-match interview wall and around your stadium probably in your program is is you know marketing four or five betting companies to your global audience is not i would argue not healthy money that's what it boils down to so let's talk about money shall we here's dr dan plumley Senior Lecturer in Sports Finance at Sheffield Hallam University. You get three main ways in which a football club makes its money. Match day, TV slash broadcasting and commercial revenue. So uh, match day income would be season tickets, uh, walking trade, games, you know, fans that just turn up uh, ad hoc. Any secondary spend from that around catering, programmes, etc. Anything that goes into a match day. The TV and broadcasting money is fairly self-explanatory. Games that are shown on TV, clubs would receive a fee and clubs also get a kind of central pot from the broadcasting deal in the Premier League in English football. And then commercial is, is your sponsorship type stuff. Um, any Any shirt sponsors, any corporate partners, anything like that would go into the commercial side of the business. So why are clubs so often choosing gambling companies as their sponsors? Primarily, it's probably the best option on the table for clubs financially. So, you know, if you look at at how a club would go about signing a commercial deal like that, or indeed how a commercial partner would want to get involved with football, it would be a monetary transaction. There would be a fee there that is paid to the club um, in receipt of that sponsorship. And I just get the sense at the minute even more so in the current climate, that clubs would take the best offer on the table. And if that's a gambling company, then so be it. On the face of it, you'd be forgiven for thinking that morality doesn't come into the picture at all when clubs are striking these deals. Back to Nick Harris. Where you've got genuinely big clubs with global footprints, you know, obviously Liverpool and Manchester United are by far the biggest clubs, uh, English clubs, probably arguably followed by Arsenal and Chelsea with um, Tottenham and, and Manchester City sort of then coming in at five and six none of those clubs have got betting company sponsors because frankly they don't need to go to betting companies to get their big shirt deals so chevrolet and etihad and emirates yokohama standard chartered aia and so on when clubs can attract big companies that aren't betting companies they would choose to do so whereas most of the other uh, clubs and a majority of the championship clubs now and, and in the premier league have actually gone to betting companies because they are simply will pay more money than other companies and by more money that might be sort of between sort of five and ten million pounds in the Premier League and perhaps you know half as much down in the championship they just will pay more money because they can leverage their sponsorships so much more easily by getting people to gamble with them and ultimately lose money with them. This is a really important point. For those clubs who don't enjoy the abundant riches of those at the top of the Premier League, financial pressures are very real. Several clubs in the Football League have gone into administration or even folded in recent years. Performing on the pitch is the best way to appease fans and also create more lucrative revenue streams. Bet Victor's Paul Louis has a few thoughts on this. I think football's business model is a little bit screwed, let's be honest. We We have a Premier League which everyone strives to get to, which is which is well-funded, it revolves around huge TV rights. You know, there's an awful lot of revenue in the top league. People are striving to build their 
their clubs from a commercial enterprise to be able to tap into those revenues. And clearly the step from Football League to Premier League is a huge one. And for, you know, absolutely, to get there, the investment in players, in facilities, you know, it's huge. And being able to fund that simply through people coming through the turnstiles is impossible. If, until the commercial model of football changes, it's very, very difficult to see how, I suppose, how, how clubs can bridge, bridge that gap. I mean, it's almost impossible. And the only way you can solve it is by things like wage cap, all the things that people don't want to talk about. They have to start being considered because these external revenues from betting companies will not, I just don't see that they can, they can continue to exist. And you just simply, simply can't get to a point where I think you keep everybody happy. I think it's absolutely impossible. Many clubs have struggled under the weight of football's business model for some time, but currently they're facing a much less familiar yet more threatening adversary, coronavirus. Here's the mail on Sunday's Nick Harris again. Really low down the pyramid, like in in League One, League Two, clearly most of those clubs were able to use the furlough scheme. They're not on big wages. We've had an announcement that there's going to be a fixed salary cap in those divisions. So that's, that's massive. That is really a huge step change in the way that football is run, that there's now going to be a hard salary cap in two divisions. And that is, you know, that's a pretty direct response to to the fact that the livelihoods of those clubs really are under threat. And that's a big thing to address that. Now, at the top level, the Premier League, yes, the, the clubs have, have lost or are going to lose sort of perhaps between 10 and £30 million. The big, big clubs like, you know, the highest turnover clubs like Manchester United with revenues of more than 500 million they might lose I don't know 10% of their revenue for a year which is a lot of money it's tens of millions of pounds but they can they can they're big enough and rich enough to to shoulder that other clubs it will vary and generally because they are so well off because of TV money they'll be able to get through it I guess the championship is that middle ground they've not taken action like the two bottom divisions they're not well off enough to shoulder it in the way that the Premier League clubs are it's going to be very difficult for some clubs and easier to bear for others. But I think it's too early, like a lot of the effects of the pandemic, not just in sporting terms, to sort of say, well, what is the net effect of the pandemic? But it's certainly not good. There's one voice we're still yet to hear, a voice that, in football's era of billionaire owners, so often seems to get forgotten. The fans. Michael Normanton is a Leeds United fan who's part of the Square Ball, a fanzine and podcast devoted to his club. It is an addiction to money within the game. Before betting companies came along, it functioned absolutely fine. And it's just, it's the same thing that compels clubs to sign up for ever more TV packages and then complain because they're having to play a game on a Friday night and a Thursday night. And this this has been moved to half past five and stuff. And it's, it's almost like, well, no one actually wants this stuff. Like people only want the money from it. They don't want any of the actual problems that it causes, but it's just always there for people. And they're like, well, it's still an extra few million quid. Maybe we can do something with that. And this is why I think it'd be better if it was regulated. I'm kind of very much in favour of regulation for stuff like this because it needs a grown-up to go, no, do you know what? Please don't do this. Because the people involved, I think you almost can't blame the individuals involved. Like, I don't I don't know who's necessarily sponsored by a betting company down in the lower leagues. But, you know, if someone goes to Accrington, for example, and says we can double your, the amount of money you're receiving, for a club like that, you can see why completely they would say, all right, yeah, brilliant. We'll, we'll absolutely take that. And if you want us to put out some tweets that are sponsored and we'll stick stuff around the ground and, and we'll put things in the bars and we'll do all, we'll do absolutely anything you want for the money. And you can see why they do it, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea, particularly in the long term. 
Leeds signed a shirt sponsorship deal with betting brand SBO Top at the start of this, the 2020-21 season, which was celebrated as the most lucrative in the club's history. This replaced the club's previous sponsor, fellow betting brand 32 Red. So Leeds fans are no strangers to seeing betting logos around the club. I asked Michael how this sits with them. I think it's one of those things that people have not necessarily been bothered by because people just see it as we've signed a new shirt deal, there's extra money coming in, it's really good. The reason it needs regulation, I think, at a higher level is because it's one of those things that people don't necessarily realise is a problem until they or someone they know develops a bit of a problem with gambling. And I think what we've seen is like kind of growing up as a in the mid-90s, gambling around football was a thing, but it was a thing that was done in betting shops and it was it was almost like... It wasn't a standard thing, whereas I feel like there's a generation of fans, younger generations, just to have internet gambling as a thing that they do. I think the fact that it is, it is so in your face all the time within football and the fact that it's almost become, even some of the advertising pushes you towards, like, it matters more when there's money on it and stuff. Is if, you're like, if, you're not, if you're not betting on a game, are you really enjoying it? And I think that has been a bit of a bad influence on people. And it's I know there's a, a degree to which you need, people have to have personal responsibility over this, but I feel like there's people haven't maybe been bothered about it because they don't see the issue until something happens to them. Clearly, something needs to change. In the build-up to the 2019 general election, both Conservative and Labour pledged as part of their respective manifestos that there would be a review of the current legislation around gambling. Currently, as we have been for a while, Boris Johnson's government is describing the Gambling Act review as imminent. Back to Don Foster. We've got a large number of people, including around 50,000 children under the age of 16 who've got gambling addiction problems. And so there is definitely a need to look again at the legislation around gambling. The committee I was on looked at recommendations for that and the government itself, as you implied, has committed to doing a full review of the Act. The Lord Select Committee he's referring to produced a report in July this year about gambling-related harm. One of the issues inevitably is advertising, which was de-restricted back in the 2005 Act. And although there is currently no clear research evidence that links the amount of advertising to the level of problem gambling, There is a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests it's a real issue. And given that in particular that the advertising is increasingly online and targeted to individuals, we are finding a lot of young people are now subject to that advertising, are now on various gambling websites, signed up to various gambling accounts using perhaps their parents' credit card to do so and so on. So it's clear to us that something needed to be done uh, and that's why we made the range of recommendations about some restrictions to the amount of advertising, particularly in terms of direct marketing. uh, And one of the proposals was to reduce the level of um, uh, advertising uh, and sponsorship surrounding sport and in particular football where as people will know the vast majority of premiership teams have got gambling company logos on their shirts uh, lots of gambling advertising about 20 percent of the pages in a match day program will have gambling advertising in it seen obviously by children attending those games as well so we decided that we would reduce and prevent in the future 
the sponsorship of sport by gambling companies. Matt Gaskell of the NHS Northern Gambling Service agrees with the advertising and sponsorship restrictions, but he'd like to take it a step further. We need to make significant changes to the exposure and the ease in which people can gamble and, and, and gamble on sport and use the in-play sports betting. I would advocate restrictions to the availability of in-play sports betting. So specifically, I would take it off online. So you wouldn't be able to do it online. So you wouldn't be able to have such ease of access on your smartphone and on your tablets and laptops at home. You would have to go somewhere like to a bookmakers, for example, or where you can be supervised and where there can be uh, better supervision and regulation over what you're doing. While suggestions and debates on the subject are encouraging, there has been no indication from the government as to what the Reviewed Act would look like. And with everything that's going on in the world today, Lord knows when it might actually happen. Luckily, I know one Lord that's clued up about such things. The government says they want to act. They have got a lot of other things on their plates at the moment. Coronavirus, obviously. Uh, and sadly, in my view, continued negotiations in relation to Brexit. So it's understandable that they've got other issues on their plate. But it is perfectly possible for work to start on this. But the other thing I'd say is that very often the media keeps saying that we need to have a review and then we need to have new legislation. The truth is, if you look at the recommendations, both from the all-party parliamentary groups report on online gambling reforms, and you look at the House of Lords Select Committee report, which covers wider issues as well, both of those reports make clear that there are very many changes that could be made that do not require legislation. There are some of the changes that we're both recommending that could be done tomorrow if the government had a mind to do it. So we don't need to wait for a review. We don't need to wait for new legislation. Some of the changes can take place almost immediately. Whether small changes are made tomorrow or sweeping changes happen as part of a review, this country needs action from the government. However, Nick Harris fears that the ongoing pandemic might have caused an unforeseen stumbling block. The review coming as it does in the COVID crisis, betting companies provide different levels of income to different clubs that obviously helps them make ends meet. And I think right at the moment, the COVID crisis might be something that for now allows betting to stay involved very much in football. Back in 2005, the government reviewed the Gambling Act with three main aims. To prevent gambling being a source of crime and disorder, to ensure that gambling was conducted fairly and openly, and to protect children and other vulnerable people from being harmed or exploited by gambling. You could suggest that the first two aims were somewhat successful. Gambling isn't a particularly large source of crime, and it is being conducted fairly and openly. That final aim though, the one concerning children and vulnerable people, has been an unmitigated disaster. Right now, in 2020, 60% of the gambling industry's profits come from 5% of its customers. These people are often called problem gamblers and are most certainly vulnerable. 61,000 of these problem gamblers are children aged between 11 and 16. This government needs to act and reform the analogue measures that currently govern this digital age.